being the worst, episode 9, recorded live, Sunday, September 23rd, 2012. From beingtheworst.com, it's the Being the Worst podcast. Audio apprenticeships for the aspiring software craftsman. With your hosts, Carrie Street and Renat Abdulin. In this episode, Carrie and Renat welcome their first guest, Gregory Young. You may know Greg from his blog, training, or his CQRS fame. However, in this episode, we discuss software design, distributed systems, and the new open source event store product that Greg recently released. And now, here are Carrie, Renat, and Greg. Hello, and welcome back to the Being the Worst podcast. This is Carrie, and I'm here with Renat again. And today, it's our first guest ever. We're very pleased to welcome Greg Young to the podcast. Welcome, Greg. Thanks. And Renat, I'm going to let you kind of take the lead on this one because I know you have some questions you wanted to ask Greg related to the code you've been looking at, and I have my own questions from a beginner's perspective. So why don't you just take it away and let's get started. Okay, great. So uh, this is probably like eighth or ninth, yeah, ninth episode uh, in the Being the Worst podcast. And in the first episodes, we were talking about like the messaging basics, essentially the principles of event sourcing. And in the previous episode, uh, I was actually uh, recording without Kerry. I was trying to stress out that uh, all this uh, amazing stuff, including event sourcing and SecureS, it's merely uh, one of the multiple tools that are available to the de- developers. And that this tool is nothing if it's not used properly to solve some problem that is worth solving. And now in this podcast episode, I wanted uh, like to continue this kind of discussion and actually ask you as the author of this outstanding event store implementation, some questions like how did you actually manage to build such magnificent product that is uh, open sourced? And I mentioned that in the previous episode as an example of the code that is really worth looking at. So how did you manage actually to build such a project in six months using some uh, unexpected team somewhere in Ukraine? Well, that's a very large question. Like, uh, essentially, how did you approach the problem uh, of building that project? Like, which choices you were taking, not from really high-level management perspective, but based on this experience learned, which advices would you give to total beginners to the practice, like software engineering? Okay, well, if you get into the code base, the code base of the event store is actually, it uses very common and very old patterns. Um, as an example, the overriding architectural structure is theta. It's a staged adventure of an architecture, um, meaning that there's multiple levels of queues that things go through. Um, most of the main work happens on one thread inside of it. If you go take a look at what gets read out of the main queue, is actually what it's called there. Everything from I.O. in will go into that one particular queue. And from there, it will actually move forward and it gets processed on a single thread before being dispatched out to multiple threads. Uh, it's a very, very common architecture and a very powerful one if people start getting into it. Uh, there's quite a bit of writing that's been done on stage adventure architecture. Aside from that, what you will find is People always talk about SOA in terms of distributed systems. If you go and take a look through the code base, it's actually really using SOA internally. Um, there's a series of services that uh, connect to each other via messaging. It just happens to be an in-memory bus-based implementation. But overall, it's, it's very common patterns that people will find throughout all kinds of systems. There's also some decisions that have been made in there, and I had the benefit of having built uh, an event store out in the past, so I was able to make a lot of those kinds of decisions I knew would help simplify things later, early on in the project. So you were able to kind of avoid a lot of upfront decisions by uh, having a previous experience with the event store. But uh, like, if somebody is trying to build, not event store uh, from the scratch, but some uh, project that deals with maybe with high concurrency or a lot of threads, and they are facing like new uh, terra incognita, completely unknown ground. And uh, granted that the appropriate tool in this case would be this message bus architecture with uh, a lot of uh, small memory messages. And how would you advise to proceed to design and maybe uh, break down the functionality into separate services? Like how are you actually finding the right 
bounds for these services? Well, normally when I talk to people about finding bounds of services, um, there, there's a lot of different strategies that people can use for finding the right boundaries. Um, my favorite strategy to use is actually not to start off looking at where the boundaries of services should be. Instead, looking at the high-level functionality of what it is that you need to do. If you go, for instance, into the event store code base, there's a couple series of state machines that represent the longer-running processes inside of the event store. As an example, um, the process of executing a write, uh, including the ability to handle timeouts, failures that occur. There's also a state machine that represents the, the node as a whole and its life cycle. For instance, when it first comes up going through initialization period, um, after it makes the initialization period in the single node version, it will be in a running phase. Uh, there's also a shutdown period. Uh, when you start getting into a replicated environment, there are quite a few more of these kinds of states that it can go through. For instance, is it only a replica? Should it be acknowledging requests that come from the master? Is it allowed to accept reads? There's a whole bunch of these kinds of states that go through. Generally, if you start with these high-level state machines and you just start working out the messages that need to go in and out of them, what you'll start finding is that once you have all the messages, it's fairly easy to bring the messages together and figure out that there's going to be something here that is going to handle these five messages that are cohesive with each other. This is a very good strategy for coming out and looking for service boundaries. Is first identifying from a high level what your actual process is. Okay, so uh, actually from what you're saying, I, uh, it sounded almost similar to the domain-driven design where we start by figuring out the high-level uh, context map and bounded context and how these bounded contexts uh, maybe interact with each other. And then we go into the uh, implementation detail, details of each bounding context without worrying too much about uh, other bounding contexts because, because we already have contracts defined. Uh, similar, yes. Um, I would go one step a little bit further in that we're actually defining the long-running behavior. If I were to apply this to a bank, what we're actually talking about here is not just the approval process of a mortgage, but looking at the business process from a level of someone walks into the bank and wants to get a mortgage. At some point in the distant future, this thing is securitized and sold. Let's talk about everything that happens between walking into the bank and finally the thing securitized. Uh, if we were to go through that exercise, we'd have a really good idea about what all the different boundaries exist during that process. Okay, you partially got lost here with the business process and uh, mortgage example. Could you just uh, clarify this uh, parallel one, one more time, please? Well, the general idea is if I start all the way at that level, uh, let's imagine I'm walking into that bank on the first day talking with business people. Now, I don't know anything at all about where they've decided to put their boundaries yet. All I'm doing, and I will not let them talk about things like systems or services, I just want them to come through and start telling me what are the things that need to be done? What are all the tasks that are inside of this? And over time, you're going to start realizing that some tasks are very closely related to each other. When I start seeing related tasks that are cohesive with each other, I start thinking, well, maybe those should be put together. Um, you can see examples of this even if you go into the event store code base. It's actually quite similar. Um, as an example, we've got um, storage readers as opposed to storage writers. Why? Because if we put storage reading and storage writing together, they weren't actually cohesive with each other. Um, at first, you might think that it would be because they share a resource, but that they're not necessarily cohesive with each other. Okay. Makes sense. Uh, this is really, really similar to what we were discussing in previous uh, episodes of Being the Worst podcast uh, about finding the uh, boundaries of a single aggregate. Like each a single aggregate can contain multiple behaviors, and sometimes it's uh, really hard to figure out uh, which aggregates should go into uh, a single aggregate route or be implemented as separate aggregate routes. And here, like uh, we were using concept of which behaviors, like fit together more conveniently than others, then it might be worth trying to implement them uh, within a single aggregate route. And in your case, while well, talking about the technical uh, level, the system design, it's the same way. We're finding the behaviors uh, that relate closely together that are, seem to be implemented easier together than separately, and they might fit in the same service boundary. 
Right, and there's some things that when you just see them, you obviously understand they're going to be their their own little service. As an example, anytime you find an endpoint, um, so TCP, obviously you don't want to put TCP into 17 different places. And it sounds like there's probably going to be one endpoint that represents TCP. There's going to be another endpoint that represents HTTP. Um, those are fairly obvious ones. When you get deeper in and you start looking at some of the finer grain detail, that's where things start to become more interesting. Mm -hmm. But again, this high level uh, looking at overall behaviors and a lot using that to drive uh, your lower level behaviors is a very successful strategy. But it's just one of many strategies that can be employed. Um, other examples you might, uh, and this is one I like to show people, is to look at a uh, uh, cohesion at a data perspective. Going back to your aggregate discussion, for instance, if you add a method to this aggregate, this aggregate stores some amount of state. How much of that state is used by this behavior? Is it that there's one piece of state that this method uses and no other methods use inside of it? Um, so basically, one little metric I like to look at is a count of how many methods use which piece of state. And on the other side of that, how many pieces of state this particular method uses. In other words, how methods overlap in terms of their usage of state. This is one form of cohesion. It's known as data cohesion. But again, there's lots of these different strategies in terms of looking at cohesion. Uh, everyone talks about that you want to have low coupling and high cohesion, but no one ever talks about the, uh, the real question there of what kind of cohesion, because there are many different types of cohesion. Okay, that's interesting, and definitely uh, because I'm myself not uh, can't say exactly the definition of uh, cohesion out of the spot, so we'll need to add the reference to that into the podcast episode. So, if you go to the Wiki, Wikipedia page, I believe they they list about ten different forms of cohesion on it. Data cohesion is just one type of cohesion. There's also various behavioral uh, cohesive levels. Uh, there's logical, there's, I mean, there's a whole grouping of different types of cohesion. And what's very odd for me is that while we love to say that we search for low coupling and high cohesion, very few people actually know what type of cohesion they're trying to achieve. Well, in the, in the example of the data cohesion that you just mentioned, that was to help you identify things that maybe shouldn't be in that particular aggregate and how to separate things out. Is it, was that what you were talking about? Uh, yes, that's one thing that that metric can be used for. If, for instance, I look into an aggregate and I find that my aggregate has, let's say, five fields inside of it. And there's eight methods that use all five of those fields. And then there's one method that uses none of them. So this one additional method is potential uh, candidate maybe for being moved to a different aggregate? Yes. This is, when we start seeing these kinds of things, and there's times where I would want to do that as well. An example might be a factory method. But very often, uh, we start going down these roads and we can start identifying things that we might want to be pulling out. There's lots of these kinds of different strategies in terms of trying to get things into the right places. I don't know if you have mentioned in the podcast previously tools like Endepend or Sonar. Um, but a lot of those tools, they've got a pretty good metrics that if you know how to use them and you understand what they mean, which is they have very complicated names, but they're oftentimes very simple. You can identify places that are at risk. No tool will tell you for sure this is good or bad in, in at least most cases. I mean, okay, given you get a cyclomatic complexity of uh, 4,000 on a method, you probably want to refactor it. Mm -hmm. But uh, most of them are a lot more subjective than that. And they can identify places where things may be off, but they will still require you to go actually take a look at it. So that's potential indicators of something that needs addition, uh, additional attention. Right. And it, mm -hmm. se it seems like, Greg, potentially that the metric that you use might depend a little bit on how familiar or not you are with the domain. So in your in your bank example, if you walked in and had never been in banking, you might be leaning more towards one direction to figure out where things go. But I would imagine when you're building the event store in the context of event sourcing, which you're more familiar with, I would assume, you you may already naturally know some of the things. And how are you interviewing yourself to figure out how these things go together and what metrics to use to figure out if you're designing this properly? 
Well, I, I had a benefit of, of having built that system before. Mm-hmm. Um, so normally when we start going down these roads, the biggest things are uh, constraints that you can put on the problem that will take the problem and make it far simpler. Okay. Um, an example of this kind of constraint had to deal with our replication model. Um, I made the statement very early on that on all nodes within a replicated group, we will ensure that the transaction file is identical. There will not be allowed to have different orderings within various transaction files. Everything will be the exact same. Now, that is a massive, massive simplifying constraint Mm -hmm. when it comes to building out a replicated system because now all we have to do is just ship logs. Um, I know that because I've, I've built it before and I've built it both ways. I know all the complexities that come about with replication when you don't honor that constraint. And it doesn't mean that it's impossible to do or that there's not benefit to doing it that way. However, I know it's also far more complex. Okay. In your previous overall development experience, like just, I know that sounds general, but uh, what were uh, kind of constraints that extremely useful to be put on the system that simplified the problems? I don't know, maybe like what were the biggest development mistakes that were made uh, in, like, in the projects that you saw? Where uh, putting a constraint consciously could have helped to save the project? More often, it's not even necessarily from a technical perspective. Um, in this particular case, it happened to come about at a technical perspective, but this is really the overall way that we're viewing the system. Um, it happens in huge numbers of circumstances where the development team starts thinking about the 0.0001% of cases and not about all the rest. And it happens in business problems as well, where we look at it and we decide that, well, what happens when this one case out of 100 million does this? And this is going to break the really simple model that we had, and instead now we need to make this massively complicated model. As I mentioned, you uh, previously in this case, one of the solutions was, okay, if this uh, happens, then we... Uh, put out a box of beers to the customer that experiences this problem. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Um, Very often it is better from a software development viewpoint to actually allow the business to handle those kinds of business failures from a business perspective, not from a technological perspective. In other words, we don't try to stop them from happening. We don't ensure that everything's going to be perfect. We let it fail and we let the business handle at that point. I have an example I like to give of this, and you can imagine that you are automating um, the process of building computers at Dell and getting them shipped out to customers. There is a real possibility that when one of the machines comes out of one section of the factory to the next, that there's a dead cat inside of it. (laughs) Do you automate that? It's a perfectly valid thing, and we could have an entire section that deals with dead animals inside of the shippable computers. Nice. (laughs) And that would make us very complex in terms of, well, how do we deal with dead animal detection? And testing that would be pretty fun as well. Yes, and and the automated testing could be quite interesting. (laughs) But you get the idea. At some point, we, we... stop continuing with this problem and we realize that we have already provided most of the business value we're going to be able to provide. That that said, um, not all systems can do that. If you are, for instance, building a Mars rover, you can't just decide that, well, this one situation isn't going to be handled in the software, the software will die. You need to take into consideration what kind of system you're actually building when you go through and make these kinds of decisions. Okay, that's a really, really interesting perspective. Uh, so, uh, while attacking the problem, it's really important to take into the consideration the context and maybe to try to simplify uh, the problem getting away from certain specific corner cases if uh, avoiding them or if simply ignoring them is more beneficial uh, than trying to solve them? Well, I think the big thing is, and this is the way I always explain it to people, there, the system having some problem, that is a risk from a business perspective. 
And there's two ways of dealing with risk. Uh, the one that we most commonly deal with it is, is known as preventative strategies, where we prevent the risk from actually occurring. Uh, we don't allow things to get there. There's another form of dealing with these kinds of risks, which is to be responsive to them. Now, the trick is, in order for me to be responsive, I need to be able to detect that the thing has happened. If the thing has happened and I can detect it, I very often can, instead of trying to prevent that thing from happening, respond quickly in the case that it has happened. Um, you can imagine, for instance, the, the Dell example with a dead cat coming out on one of the motherboards. Um, if I have people that are on the factory line that are looking inside of there and they can recognize there's a dead cat inside the computer, well, then I can basically come up and have them respond to it by taking it off of the line. Um, the same thing can be applied to very many of the problems that we're dealing with, where it's much cheaper for us to deal with it from a business perspective than it is for us to deal with it from a technological perspective. And by allowing some failure conditions to actually make it through, we can oftentimes end up better serving our customers. But again, you need to consider what kind of system you're actually building at that point, because there's some systems where allowing those kinds of failures is not an acceptable thing to be doing. But in general, it's a very effective strategy towards reducing complications within systems is to try to handle as many cases as you can within your simple model and to only justify a more complex model once it's actually needed from a business perspective. In other words, you know, we could get a duplicated username coming in and there's this period of 100 milliseconds where two users chose the same username we can end up with this problem. Okay, but how often does this happen in production? Show me a metric. Show me if this thing has happened 500 times in production. And we can figure out what a cost of each failure is in production. I can tell you how long it's going to take me to automate that solution and the added complexity I may get added to it or the flexibility of myself that may be removed because we've handled it. Let's try to actually justify things. Okay. However, uh, like uh, as at least from uh, my experience, how, how as we all know, developers are extremely good in uh, making wrong assumptions and uh, yeah, making really, really wrong assumptions as it is with in my case. And uh, usually this tends to lead the, into the systems that are overly complex and that don't manage to hit this sweet spot between simplicity and uh, solving the right problems. Are there any techniques that you use yourself or maybe your advice to the, your developers to use in order to get not too complex? Well, let's, let's throw the event store out of this for a minute talk about business systems. Very often I dealt with uh, developers that are suffering from such syndromes. And I've also dealt with a lot of business people that suffer from such syndromes. Where you get in on a project and they don't actually know what they want. But you're supposed to build it for them. I won't even get into the complications of trying to do a fixed bid contract on something that no one can actually tell you what it is. But one of the strategies I love doing is to say, okay, we're going to take the developers and we're going to spend two weeks working on this whole section that you expected to take six months. And we're going to make arbitrary decisions. And we're just going to do it. And it's going to be a complete and total pile of crap. And we understand that. And we're going to go live in two weeks. And you're actually going to use it. And then I want you to tell me how it sucks. Tell me what the most awful things are. And this is very similar to a lot of practices that people do. Like, for instance, when you ask people to prioritize which features are the most important. No, no, no. I want you to prioritize by telling me which things are the most painful. Nice. Pain-driven development. And basically what we're going to do as a development team is we're going to be as responsive as possible. If something comes up that's a level zero problem, huge problem, we'll have a fix to you in production within two to three hours. I mean, it will be everyone on the team stops what they're doing, swarms on it, and pushes to production. In order to do this, of course, you need to be able to uh, bring yourself to a fairly high level in terms of being able to do things like continuous deployment. 
Um, but it's a very successful strategy in terms of getting past a lot of these problems. It also helps a lot with analysis paralysis, uh, both from the development team side and from the side of the business people, which I find the business people are often just as guilty as the developers for leading things into analysis paralysis. When we have discussions, we have focused discussions at that point. We discuss what is wrong with what the arbitrary decision we made was. How does it suck? Why does it suck? It's not what things could we ever possibly build, which is an infinitely bounded discussion. It's a very focused discussion, and they have something in front of them. Uh, other ways of getting towards this is to do prototyping. Um, I believe the pattern for what we're discussing here was named about a decade ago. It was actually called production prototypes, where we basically just prototype something as quick and dirty as possible and throw it in production and make them use it. The idea being that we will, over time, anneal a piece of software that's actually fairly decent. Okay, so you're using first uh, iterations, uh, first prototypes, as actually a tool to focus discussion and attention of everybody on most playable things and iteratively evolve from there, as opposed to trying to capture the huge problem space which is not worth capturing. Right, and there's a bit too, because you can't do this for all systems. Some systems can have the sun to them, other ones can't. Um, this would, for instance, be a terrible way to try to build a database. If you want to build a SQL database, just scrapping something together over the course of the next month and pushing it to production and trying to figure out where it breaks, mm -hmm. that's a really bad way of doing that. Um, you probably want people that have gone through this before and kind of already know a lot of the strategies and the theory that's behind it, as opposed to trying to iterate your way towards the theory. Um, but for most business systems, it's a very successful strategy. Yeah, and I think, Greg, that leads into sort of what I was thinking, because I agree with the comment about the SQL database, and it's probably a bad strategy to use for an event store as well. And so when you're looking at those trade-offs, you know, between building a blog clone and a Mars rover, and you're building out a pretty important piece of infrastructure like an event store. How did you make those ROI decisions from your business's perspective? Do you have any examples of the trade-offs you guys decided to make for now that says, we really do have to cover these kinds of exceptions. We can't let these things fail because that's really bad, but let the business handle something like this, even from a framework perspective, like an event store. When you're dealing with something like an event store, you are much closer to the Mars rover model, where because you're commoditizing a piece of infrastructure, you, you can't make a lot of these things where it's like, well, this could happen one time in a million. So let, let's just try that one to start with, one time in a million. So let's say I've got 100 people that are using an event store. Each of them has 100 million events. Okay, that's too much. <laughs> yeah, not good. We've already had this 10,000 times. I mean, when we start talking about problems uh, that happen in a piece of code, like especially core transaction code inside of an event store, um, I don't know if you've ever heard the term Six Sigmas talking about defects. Yes. Uh, six standard deviations. Yeah, six standard deviations would be happening multiple times per day. So you need to start talking nine, 10, 12 Sigmas. When you start trying to build out pieces of infrastructure, you have all sorts of things that you need to start thinking about that most people don't think about. Uh, one class of problems is known as Byzantine problems. It's problems that you never expected. Oh. What happens when a router on the network starts blasting arcs around everywhere? What happens when sectors on hard drives go bad? Okay, yeah. What happens when you are dealing with a hard drive that even though you told it you want this written to disk so that it's durable, it doesn't. <laughs> okay. Or if the network uh, switch or something else is so broken that it sends one byte per minute. Uh, yes, that would be another example. Uh, normally, the other one that you run into is what happens if uh, somebody actually starts flipping bits inside your messages. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a whole entire space of problems which would fall underneath different 
problem. Um, other things, uh, what happens if you have bugs in your own software? You start, what happens if somebody comes up on the network uh, and they're a modified version of your software that isn't working right? Talking to you. So in other words, not trusting yourself is a big part of getting into these kinds of problem spaces. Um, guarding against bugs in your own code, guarding against all of these types of different things. And I guess like when you were starting to build the event store, you didn't uh, consider the full list of the problems uh, that you would need to handle. And right now at the current stage of uh, the event store, which is like production for the single node configuration, uh, you not, like you handled not all of the potential failures that are possible out there. Oh, of course, not all. And that's part of our decision to open source is 500 eyes are going to be better than whichever five I happen to be able to put on the project. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially for these kinds of things and finding things that could happen. We actually had an interesting example of this uh, about a week ago. If you go look, there's actually a commit. I think it's on the main branch for it right now. Uh, I went through and handled a case inside of our index where we actually recover from an out-of-memory exception. Okay. Um, because we could get an out-of-memory exception there, but I, I was looking at it and I realized that even though we could get it there, it's actually one we can recover from. And you can get the out-of-memory exception and the system won't go down. Nice, nice. But there's all these kinds of things that can happen and getting in and realizing all of them, even for relatively small code bases, is a vast amount of work. Um, this is why if you wanted, for instance, to go make some changes into the core of MySQL, good luck. <laughs> the code base has been around. It's gone through a lot of these situations before. And once you've gone through a lot of them, you, you've handled a lot of them. And making code changes there, it, it, it becomes risky because you could be introducing new ones. So again, like coming back to the original question, it really depends what kind of systems we're talking about. And in this particular case, we don't have a lot of those kinds of trade-offs because building something like an event store is much closer to building a Mars rover than it is building a business system. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So event store is complicated based on the problems it's trying to solve and the precision it's trying to solve. But from the code level, it's like really beautifully written code. Uh, however, if there are, like, there are developers out there who are maybe building business systems and they're using event sourcing approaches and they're interested in learning more actually about the events or implementation and maybe even uh, contributing something, like what would be the first steps for them to take in order to be uh, comfortable with this uh, code base and be able to help with that project? Well, it, it depends on, on the person's background and what it is they want to be able to do. As an example, if they are very, very comfortable with low-level I.O., whether it be TCP or file I.O., uh, there's very segregated sections of code that deal with that. If they, for instance, wanted to get a good overall understanding of how everything is structured together, there's a document actually up on the website now which kind of gets a high-level view, which is the... Uh, it's an architectural summary which kind of explains some of the different pieces and how they come together and what some of the various pieces do. For instance, how the overall strategy of indexing works as an example. Or you can also start uh, going to the code and start reading uh, from the single node controller and the state machine there. Yep, that's another good place. Uh, the other way of doing that is to, for instance, start on any one command that you're going to be dealing with. Um, an example might be if you're familiar with the Atom Pub interface of it, and that's how you normally use it. Try going into the HTTP controller that handles, let's say, a post to write events, and that's going to raise up a message. Start following that message, and very quickly you'll end up at the vNode controller. Um, after that, you'll end up at the, uh, the, the state machine uh, little request manager. Uh, if there's one per request, that'll lead you into the storage writer. And you can basically trace through the code that way as well. Um, but we will, and we, we've already accepted some, although they haven't been uh, 
of much value. There's mostly been comments or someone adding something to our git ignore. But we, we do accept pull requests. So if people want to get into the code and make it better in some way, uh, we will generally be accepting that unless it's something that is uh, not necessarily good given our other goals. Like, for instance, if in the process of you doing that, uh, you were to break, uh, let's say, our replication, which is in our private source uh, control, uh, then we probably won't accept that. But for the most part, we will accept uh, pull requests. But uh, for example, uh, for this case, when something uh, in the public, some changes in the public store uh, break some functionality in the private store, like wouldn't that be covered actually partially by the tests in the public store? Uh, no, it'd probably be covered by the tests in the private store. But the functionality that is changing, it's still in the public store. So technically, there should be tests in the public store as well, no? Uh, that would be extraordinarily hard to do. As an example, one of the things that you may notice if you go into the code base is that even though we're running in a single node, we still do uh, two writes for every single write. Uh, we append first the prepare phase, and then we and then we do a commit phase. Um, that's not really needed inside of a single node. Inside of a single node, you could just do a single write. You don't necessarily need to have back acknowledgments from anybody about it. However, when we start talking about in a distributed scenario, um, it works much better to actually have the, the two different modes. Actually, go through a prepare phase and then a commit phase afterwards. Oh, actually, so uh, the prepare phase actually starts writing, writes uh, the data locally. Then we uh, wait till acknowledgement comes from the other nodes, and then we write actual commit. Right, and then when we write the commit, that after the commit is when everything, for instance, can be read through indexes, etc. Uh, the prepare is basically just the data, and then later on you would end up with your commit phase. Um, that you could change that in a single node to only be a single write, but that would actually add a huge amount of complication than maintaining a key source basis. So generally speaking, we would uh, prefer to stay away from that kind of change, or at the very least, if you went in and made that kind of change, we would probably want to. Uh, at least speak with you about it and go through it and probably it would not just be a simple push, we would probably uh, go through and, and deal with a new branch and start working through the ideas with you. And uh, personally, I would like strongly recommend to all the listeners of the podcast, the idea of the podcast is to be the worst and to learn from really the best, to go directly into the, the event store and start learning from it because like that is uh, the best code base that I've seen so far in my relatively short development career and actually reading the classes there like how they interact it's uh, actually one of the best uh, study guides out possible out there if you're interested in building other distributed systems or uh, high frequency systems or just uh, complex systems making them sure that they work together pretty well. There's also quite a bit of useful code in there that's now covered underneath a three-class DSC license that people can just lift. Um, as an example, I, I wrote a blog post on this the other day on the GetAventure blog. Uh, we've got three hash implementations there. We've got Murmur 2, Murmur 3A, and we've got XXHash, uh, all of which are unsafe hash implementations. And those are fairly technical pieces of code, but the code's there and it's open BSD license now, so you can just go grab it. Um, other examples would be the buffer management that's included inside of there, the ability to reuse memory as opposed to constantly going off and creating new memory. Uh, it will basically make large arrays inside of your large object heap and then pass out small pieces of those arrays. There's even a stream replacement let's say instead of using a memory stream that uh, creates memory inside of what your normal heap that will reuse for a memory stream memory out of your large object heap. Uh, this is a very common pattern when you start building out uh, uh, systems that are going to be doing large amounts of work where you reuse resources as opposed to creating new ones and letting them get destroyed. Uh, you pre-allocate them as opposed to allocating them on the fly. Yeah, and other examples that uh, come to the top of my head uh, from a few days of reading event store, it's like using a managed memory or using like some uh, helpful data structures like pairing heap or object pools. 
Yes. Or another uh, really interesting thing that I've discovered yesterday, it was uh, about using a TCP connection manager, where actually uh, a new connection manager is instantiated per new connection, and it acts partially as a state machine that is responsible for tracking the heartbeats and uh, tracking life cycle of a single connection. And actually, this approach is uh, extremely similar to the text that Peter Higgins put in his chapter 6 of Zero MQ Guide about using uh, Zero MQ socket library with the state machines as well. So as you can see, like all great ideas, they really start looking similar if you start seeing a lot of them. Yeah, it's also very similar to the way you do it in Akka, where you have an actor for connection. Uh, again, these, these ideas are all very similar, and they come from a lot of disparate places, but they're generally the same ideas that are being talked about in different ways. To Renat's point, this is probably the first episode we've had that demonstrates our namesake the best, where never before have I felt like the worst, more, than, more so than in this particular episode, and that's a great thing, because going back to the whole point of this, which was... You want to go out and find a band that has way better musicians than you and listen and let them teach you how to play. And today I feel like I've been listening. I went off to Japan. People are speaking Japanese and I know six words. If you're like me and listening and you, you might feel like, wow, that's a lot of cool stuff, but I'm not really sure where to go. I'm not really sure what to do. Join the club because um, I've been eating this episode up and loving what I'm hearing. But don't worry if uh, you are one of the worst people listening like I am right now. So just to get into that slightly a little bit more, I know we're running a little long here. But mm -hmm. for, for the episodes that we've had so far, what beginners and people like me might be thinking, and we've covered some of this already, which is, Okay, well, we've been we've been mentored so far by Renat and what Renat's been teaching us. And in our journey so far, we've only been persisting our events to, you know, serialize messages to a bin file on the hard drive. And we're just about now starting to refactor our code to take it from simple console examples and in a few episodes get to a more production worthy sample solution. And so what comes to mind is, okay, so obviously the balance we talked about before, and am I building a Mars rover or am I building a throwaway website? There's a big difference in my trade-offs of what technology and tools I might use. So, Renat, when we go into the, to the future code base, there's a lot of listeners that have already looked at locad.cqrs and how you're doing uh, persistence of events there. Could you guys maybe compare and contrast how we make those decisions and say, okay, Today, if you look at the code in LOCAD, this is how mm -hmm. persistence happens. And this is what's better in addition to all those use cases we talked about, you know, the, the Mars rover kind of use cases that you're obviously not trying to cover right now. And that's why you might potentially want to outsource this to a, the event store, pay someone else to worry about those things. But in addition to that, what are some of the things going through your mind for LOCAD on why you would use the current persistence approach and when you would actually go and, and get the, the true production grade event store? Okay, so uh, actually the event store uh, currently in LOCAD, it's dead, dead, dead simple version of uh, logic behind Greg's event store. So it uses uh, actually chunks of transaction files, which are append only, and which are being uh, persistent to the disk uh, immediately in one uh, operation. And uh, this stuff is uh, crash tolerant. So if server dies halfway through writing the data to the disk, then on the next restart, we'll simply discard the ending of that uh, chunk and we'll start writing to a new one. That's similar to Greg's event sort and that's similar to Bitcask of uh, Basho, as we mentioned previously. And the whole purpose of, uh, of this store implementation, for example, was actually to have something simple. That's something uh, is understandable so that other people can actually learn about the implementation and be uh, able to use it more comfortably. And that is something that is built into the code. There are no external dependencies. And so uh, if you have this uh, set of uh, building blocks, you can actually start developing locally and maybe deploying to the cloud. And that would work maybe for 70% of the scenarios, unless you really need to have some great replication maybe, or high level of uh, reliability, or I don't know, maybe to handle some specific maintenance scenarios. If that is the case, then you can actually migrate from uh, this DETS implementation within Locat SecureS to Greg's event store and gain uh, a lot of additional benefits and also have the projections hosted and automatically manage it 
at much higher usability level. So once again, the core point of uh, look at CQRS, it's uh, more of a sample application that can be used in production for local development uh, that actually tries to be self-explanatory, although it fails that uh, horribly, and tries to show how this stuff can be built and wired together. However, if you're really needing something more production-worthy, something that can handle a much higher level of throughput and be more robust, then Event Store is one of the most obvious uh, potential candidates. And actually, while building the logic within the Locat CQRS, I was explicitly trying to align the both language and the implementation semantics and the contracts with the text and concepts uh, that were described in Von Vernon's uh, book and the chapter on uh, uh, aggregates with event sourcing and with actually uh, Greg's event store based on the discussions we had with him previously. Yeah, and I, and I think if we, I'm looking at uh, Greg's site now, the geteventstore.com, and there's actually a section, why should I be using event store? And I would imagine that even I can, I'm looking at these these uh, icons and I can imagine things that just don't exist in LOCAD, like I don't believe there's APIs and management interfaces and portals of JavaScript code that you know shows you what's going on. There's just a lot of extra stuff in there that, that doesn't exist in LOCAD, correct? Yes, and it's never existed. Because it's just for getting started with distributed systems uh, in a really easy way, in, in such a way that you can uh, cross-host the stuff locally or in the cloud. Uh, and it works for majority of really simple applications. If you start going into really specific cases, and if you start uh, needing really specific, I don't know, maybe uh, performance requirements on the views or uh, on the way the views are managed or maybe they are like handled in ad hoc mode or persistent mode or in continuous mode, then obviously look at CRS is not even trying to handle these scenarios. It's something out of uh, the league and Event Store can be, it's the best candidate right now. And probably it will be the, the only major player in this uh, space. There's, there's another thing to consider. Um, it, it's not necessarily a wonderful argument to make right now, but it's a great one for me to be making in three to six months. And that would be the number of installed instances and the experience uh, that is intrinsic within the group for support. If, for example, you've got a piece of software that's been running in 50 installations and it ran through 50 billion transactions, the chances of you coming in and having a problem with it are far lower than other things you may pick up. Yes, absolutely. Right. Uh, and that's something to consider. I mean, e even here, where we, we run pretty much daily, um, at least on my machine, filling up an entire hard drive, deleting all the data, and restarting again. Having the commoditized version of things, you have a tendency of entering into code that's gone through far more rigorous testing than you would run into otherwise. Uh, and a lot of it's the kinds of problems we were talking about earlier, these uh, type of Byzantine problems that can come up. What do you do when you get an out-of-memory exception? Do you die or do you keep going? And it really depends where that out-of-memory exception is. What happens when the disk is full? You've run to the situation where you've written the entire disk filled with data, and you go to do a write, and it comes back and tells you the disk is full. Uh, there's all sorts of these weird corner cases, especially at an OS level. And it's a vast amount of work to actually be able to do them. Um, one other thing I might show is a slight difference between the two. Is we, although we can also be embedded in your code and you can just call us directly inside your code by in, inside your own process space, you can also take the event store and it supports Atom Pub over all of your event space. Uh, so each stream becomes an Atom Pub feed. Yeah, and I, I actually opened the Atom Pub URL in my browser and it showed a really nice uh, explanation and self describing uh, page. Hmm. That's cool. So if, if I need, for instance, somebody else within my organization to actually be able to uh, access my event streams, they can. There's also a huge number of places where, especially in small to medium, um, I, I will use the term system, but what I really mean here is a system of components or a system of systems, depending which vocabulary you like, where we end up with lots of message and all this kind of infrastructure 
where in this case, uh, in a lot of these situations, you would be able to use something like the event store to also handle a lot of those kinds of functionality. Because uh, you can go through and read off of a, an atom screen. That's the same as reading off of a queue. And there's a lot of benefits to that. Uh, and it's been very nice for me going into this problem because event sourcing is inherently wonderful to do over a RESTful service. Uh, consider for a minute uh, where if I've written an event and I've given a URL associated to an event, when does that URL become invalid? Never. Well, and if it's deleted. If you delete the event stream, then yes, you will get back a, a gone status code. Otherwise, it's there forever. You can do a lot with intermediary caches in between. Um, there, there's, it's a fairly new space, and there's a whole lot that can be done there. And it's, it's very interesting to be in some of those areas today. You're referring to literally being able to take advantage of the, the native capabilities of the HTTP protocol and the REST caching and reverse proxy. Yeah, yeah all, that, all that goodness that you just kind of get for free with the protocol and having the event store able to take advantage of it. Yes. Okay. Because the event store natively supports AtomPub and it's AtomPub plus XML and AtomPub plus X.JSON. I see. Um, and you can take advantage of a lot of this stuff in between. Uh, and it, it can be very useful for people to be able to start taking advantage of the restful nature of some of those protocols in terms of being able to share information between places. And it can help reduce complexity in some architectures to, and I know message brokers are bad and evil, but to actually just use something like the event store as a form of a message broker. Um, I'm not recommending that everybody run off and do that. However, you can do that, and for some places, it's the right thing to do. And if you're in one of those places, it can be a massive advantage to having something like it. And especially granted the fact that the event store, the single node configuration, is uh, open source and it's free for usage. Renat, to that point, can you can you guys help me understand a little bit? Because I'm, I'm a little confused as to, I know that in locad.cqrs, I believe you know you're mainly persisting your events to in the Azure case if if you're not doing local Azure blobs and things like that. If you were going to take the locad sample and plug in the event store instead as the new persistence layer, what are you actually running? How do you how do you actually make the event store work with with that solution? Well, the simple options would be to start a dedicated virtual machine that actually uh, runs event store uh, locally and it persists to local hard drives. And then uh, maybe have a replication mechanism that, uh, within some delay, puts uh, writes these local uh, hard drive files to the Azure blob and also maybe replicates the data from this virtual machine to a different virtual machine in a different data center. I see. Greg, do you, uh, I know this is, you just released this recently, future posts going to be covering the recommended deployment scenarios. I mean, obviously you have the appliance model I saw on your site if you're going to try to roll your own and do it yourself and just license the code in, in a broader production, is it likely going to recommend that you sort of emulate that appliance? Well, uh, there, there's actually various places in the roadmap. Um, around first quarter next year, we're going to be mainly focused on delivering consistent hashing into the system as well, which will change some of what I'm about to say. But it will only change it for a very narrow group of people. Uh, most people don't need consistent hashing. Is it for partitioning? Uh, yeah. Um, so let's just talk about the replicated mode. Um, you don't have to grab appliances. There's also there the software-only license version. We, we have that there. We prefer people to get appliances. We prefer it is it helps narrow our support. It's much easier for me to support you on known hardware than it is for me to support you on arbitrary hardware. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Yep. Now, in either case, whether you're running the appliance or whether you're running on your own machine, what we do is we use a distributed model where you're going to have N machines. So let's say that you set that you're going to have three machines, and then you're, we're going to have a fourth machine that's there as a warm backup, and we'll talk about them in a minute. What ends up happening is we build quorums. 
between your various machines. So if you've got three machines, we need two of the machines to basically come back and say that they acknowledge that this transaction has occurred before we consider the transaction to have occurred. And the reason for this is the whole myriad of failure conditions you can get into with people unplugging tables at various points. So every write inside of a quorum model is guaranteed to be consistent across the cluster. Now, it will deal with this automatically. You don't have to worry about dealing with this. So basically, you might, for instance, say, I want to put uh, three nodes into three availability zones inside of Amazon. Or you might say, I want to put three nodes inside of one availability zone. It really depends what you're up to. This is a fully consistent version of replication. Uh, what Reno had been talking about earlier was more so that my single node will be accepting transactions and then basically I'm putting a warm replica into the cloud in blob storage. Um, generally speaking, I want to focus more so on these kind of quorum rights and keeping my, my cluster up and running in a consistent fashion and that's going to be my fallback in, in a worst case. So we might have another node that's out there that's a warm replica that, okay, given we lose all three of our nodes, uh, if that happens, then we've got a warm replica that we can fall back to. But overall, the, the main point of what that uh, license version actually provides is this kind of replication that's happening on top. And there, it, it's actually done, if people want to look it up, it's done through Paxos Quorum. Uh, we run past those selections and then go through and uh, build a quorum space upon them. But our ideal point to reach is one where we have no or very, very little amount of admin intervention. Um, and it's extraordinarily hard to get a distributed system to that level. Mm -hmm. um, that's our overall goal. Yep, and I and I could see. I certainly am not looking at your roadmap, but just selfishly for for my, where my brain's at. Where if I have a small company and don't have my own data center, I can see myself wanting maybe even another option to say I also don't want to administer this, but please put in the official event store virtual machine configuration in in Azure or EC2, and just let me pay you to manage my instances virtually. And because I don't have a data center for your appliance, but I certainly would love to do three mouse clicks and get the uh, the blessed version of a known configuration from, from you guys or something like that. Yes, that's... Uh, uh, if it's not available already, it will be available by uh, the first week of November when the appliance releases. Oh, that's awesome. Hmm, nice. <laughs> oh, nice. Uh, it will not be a hosted version, but it will be something along the lines of, here's an Amazon image. And you can run the Amazon image yourself. I see. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay, and in terms of uh, giving the feeling of being the worst, like this uh, entire discussion about the event store and uh, about how it was built, it's sh certainly making me feel really, really bad, which is actually a good thing. <laughs> good. I'm not the only one. Yep. Awesome. Okay. Uh, uh, Greg, I really uh, appreciate for you investing your time into this detailed uh, discussion. Uh, I think uh, the listeners of the podcast will uh, love it. And thanks again. And hopefully we'll try to grab your uh, mind and pick up on it sometime later again. All right. Sure. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, it's been great. And I, yeah, I'm already drooling, Renat. I can't wait to get to the point where the solution and, that we've been talking about building so far is at the point where we can do an example with the open source free event store and plug it in just to play with it because it looks so cool. Greg, really appreciate it. Uh, I want to just give out. So, guys, if you want to check out the event store, it's at geteventstore.com. It's got links to the the initial documentation, which looks like it came out of some of uh, Greg's uh, presentations. And it really has a nice overview of what is event sourcing and things like that. I've been poking around. In the last episode, Renat told you guys to check it out for your homework. Highly recommend that. There's not only good code goodness to learn from, but uh, the documentation is already building up on the site, too. Greg, is there any other links or uh, resources that they should be checking out? Or the, the only other one, I, I believe, you can get through there, and that's going to bring you to the source code on GitHub. Yep. Cool. Yep. We'll include all that into the reference notes. Yep, we'll have all those links uh, on the episode. Uh, it was already on the last one as well. So 
please do check that out, guys, and we will be talking about this more. Appreciate it, Greg. I think Renat initially did the bait and switch on you with, hey, can you talk just for about 20 minutes? And we're already about a little over an hour, so apologize for taking uh, more time, but uh, really, truly appreciate it. No problem, guys. All right, take it easy, guys. See you. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you.